Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as professionals and allies within the field of sexual abuse and assault. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell, and I'm an attorney on the sexual abuse litigation team at Cohen & Malad, an Indianapolis law firm litigating on behalf of survivors all across the country. We're coming to you today to have a difficult conversation. White privilege, systemic racism, viewing that through the lens of the criminal justice system but not in terms of the intersectionality of black men and police or mass incarceration. Those are important conversations, but not what we're focusing on today. We're going to talk today about the historic disenfranchisement of black women in sex crimes investigations. Our guests and I have both prosecuted many perpetrators of sex crimes, and we've learned a lot over the course of time. I am white, our guest is white. We are not racist, but that's not enough. It is our responsibility to be actively anti-racist. And that starts in some ways by having the hard conversations. White people don't wanna talk about race. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us have to face some hard truths. But that's exactly what we need to do. If we don't, we are not a part of the solution. In fact, we are part of the problem. And I wanna take a second to point out that something that I believe is very important. We are not speaking on behalf of African-American women. We cannot do that. We do not understand. What we can speak to is what history tells us and what we've seen and learned with our own eyes. And it is our responsibility to learn to talk about this so that we can affect change for people of color in all areas. With that, I would like to introduce our guest and dive into this discussion. With us today is Courtney Curtis. Courtney is the Assistant Executive Director of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, or IPAC. Courtney wears many hats in her service to Indiana's prosecutors. I'll let her get more into that in a second. Prior to joining the ranks at IPAC, Courtney was a longtime deputy prosecuting attorney. She has tried hundreds of juries to completion. She's experienced in working on cases of all kinds and is an expert in crimes of sexual and domestic violence. She is so impressive, in fact, that she travels across the United States to help the National District Attorneys Association to train prosecutors from all 50 states. She is such an esteemed speaker that earlier this year, she was also the inaugural recipient of the NDAA Distinguished Faculty Award. She also happens to be one of my closest friends, and she's even my emergency contact in all HR forms, so I clearly trust her with my life. (laughs) Courtney, welcome. Thank you for being here. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Good. Um, Okay. Will you give us uh, more of a description of your background just so people understand what you're about and who you are? Sure. So currently, I'm the, as you said, the Assistant Executive Director at IPAC, and IPAC's main priority is to train prosecutors across the state of Indiana. So that's going to include the elected prosecutors from each county and then their deputies. That's our main job. Outside of that, we have some other roles. It's easiest for, you know, people from the governor's office or individual lawmakers to talk to IPAC as opposed to calling up 91 different prosecutors across the state and getting their feedback on individual initiatives or programs or statutes that they're looking to pass. So we also serve in that capacity. But by and large, what we really want to do is improve prosecutors' ability to do their jobs and also improve the way that they do their jobs, the way that they carry out their work on a day-to-day basis. So we are providing training for them. You mentioned that I was a deputy prosecutor for a long period of time, and that's true. I graduated from Indiana University Maurer School of Law in 2004, so I've been a deputy prosecutor since 2004, and I was an intern in the Marion County Prosecutor's Office prior to becoming a sworn deputy prosecutor. I've tried your standard burglary and robbery cases and homicide cases. Um, as well as child homicides, and as you mentioned, sex assault and domestic violence as well. You've been busy. (laughs) Yeah, I've been up to a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, IPAC, the important work at IPAC is really worth noting. I think it's one of the best prosecuting attorney councils in the country, admittedly a little biased, but 
really doing a good job of making sure that prosecutors are getting the best training to be doing the best job that they can. And it's worthy to note that IPAC actually on its own initiative brought an implicit bias training to the state of Indiana a couple of years ago. So doing very good work over there. So let's get started into the meat of the conversation at this point. We'll start really easy. Do you find that race plays a part in the sexual assault arena? I do. And I I know recently, obviously in the past couple of weeks, there's a, been a nationwide focus on policing and the African-American community. And the way that conversation has been borne out has been policing in the African-American suspect. So what we're talking about today is obviously the African-American victim. And to understand where we are now, we really have to kind of look back and we really have to acknowledge that particularly for the crime of rape, there's this long period of time in the nation's history where we have this intersection between race and sexual assault. For an example, between 1908 and 1963, in the state of Virginia, at that time, you could be executed for the crime of rape. So if you were convicted of rape, then that would be a death penalty eligible crime. And 58 people in that time period were executed for rape. All of them were African American. And so you can think to yourself, wow, okay, well, for, you know, how many were, how many white men were convicted in that period of time? Mm -hmm. A thousand white men were convicted of rape in that same time period. So 58 African American men were put to death. A thousand white men were not put to death. So we can start to look at that. And, and I know we're here to talk about victims, but as it turns out for the African American experience, understanding how race has affected the suspect leads us to where we go um, as far as understanding how it affects the victim. There's another case too, a 16-year-old girl named Annette Butler was victimized by a white man in 1957 in Mississippi. And in Mississippi, at that time, the jury acquitted the white defendant because they believed death, since death was um, an option in a rape case, death was too harsh for raping a black girl. Awful. I I read a little bit up on that case with Annette Butler, and I read that these four white men literally left their house that day with the intention of finding an African-American female to rape. They went to this girl's home, pretended to be police, dragged her out of her home to a swamp where they took turns raping her. And, you know, at this time, just as you said, it's punishable by life imprisonment or death, and that didn't happen, certainly. In fact, only one of them ever saw the inside of a jail cell. And the judge himself was a known white supremacist. He appointed the best attorneys in the state of Mississippi to represent these guys. And he did have some harsh words for the rapists, but it wasn't about the fact that they raped this girl. It's about the fact that they had, as he called it, interracial sexual relations with a black woman. What in the world? Right. So, When you look at the history of rape and race and how they come together, it's a hard truth to face. And I first came to this conversation, you mentioned in the introduction that uh, I'm a white person. And when I normally talk about this in front of groups, that's really obvious to them because I have platinum blonde hair. And so I am white, literally from the top of my head down to my tippy toes. And so I came to this conversation first by reading a book um, called The Blood of Emmett Till. And what struck me when I read the book, The Blood of Emmett Till, is how the white community does not, might know the name Emmett Till, but doesn't know the facts of that case. And how when I read that book and I started talking to my African-American friends, they were very well versed in all of the facts of that case. And that started making me realize, okay, so Emmett Till, if the listeners haven't heard about Emmett Till before, you need to look that up. Mm -hmm. And Emmett Till was years and years and years ago, decades ago. And so that case, if that's something that is so far in the past, but is touching my African-American friends so closely that they know the ins and outs of the facts of that case, that tells me that this isn't all in the past. And so now you look to modern examples. I mean, when I was in high school and college, R. Kelly was a joke. 
I mean, it was a joke that R. Kelly had a P tape and Dave Chappelle made a joke about the P tape. And there were all sorts of comedians who were making jokes about this tape. And so you look back when I was in high school in 1994, R. Kelly gets married to Aaliyah. I don't remember any sort of outrage about that. Me either. She's 15 years old at the time. And nobody's calling him a molester. Nobody's saying anything about the age um, or, or Leah's age and, as, and relative to his age, too. And I definitely remember I would have been in law school when, when the videotape first came out where he's molesting the 14-year-old girl. And so I remember talk about that and R. Kelly and the, you know, I think this was like the hiding in the closet time and all that yes. stuff. But here's the thing. So the girl in that video is 14 years old at the time. And I remember us talking about R. Kelly's sex tape. I don't remember us calling it R. Kelly's molest tape. Mm -hmm. I don't remember us referring to it as evidence of a child molest. In 2018, or excuse me, 2008, R. Kelly gets acquitted. He was charged. You know, there are 14 counts of child pornography. And he's acquitted. And we can have a conversation that's longer than we have time for here about why that happened or or lessons to be learned from that. But let's just start with 14 counts of child pornography. Why was he charged with child pornography and not molest? Because that's what a videotape that is recording someone having sexual relations with a minor is evidence of a child molest. It is not merely child pornography. And we didn't talk about that either. So it's not until 2018 that we get multiple indictments handed down in multiple states. That's how long it has taken from 1994 to 2018 and charges are still pending. We don't have completions of trial for R. Kelly to come to justice. And what I will tell you is every single one of the women or girls that R. Kelly has victimized are African-American. Yep. I think it's so important that you pointed, especially this case out, because you're right, 1994 to 2018, it took that long for this serial predator of children, of black female children, to hopefully face some consequences. And I'm with you. I remember when it came out that he had married Aaliyah, and I remember when his, quote, sex tape came out and the outrage or maybe not even outrage actually the discussion i think was more about the fact that he had peed on this girl or whatever it was it was then the fact that literally we have a child molest on video and he doesn't get charged with it why that's awful and as you said if we were to sit here and talk about the acquittal of what he was charged with the child porn charges we that could be probably an certainly an all day long discussion. I would recommend to listeners to watch Surviving R. Kelly on Netflix. It does go into that to some extent, and you can learn a lot about everything that we're kind of talking about in terms of R. Kelly from back when he did marry a 15 year old all the way up till 2018 and beyond. They just released a second part. So here we are thinking, you know, you talked before about the Annette Butler case, Emmett Till, Virginia in the early 1900s. And a lot of people are thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, but that was 1956. We've come so far then, since then. Well, no, we haven't. Look at R. Kelly. How how is this still happening now when we've had all of these positive, supposedly, changes in this course of time? And not only look at R. Kelly, but R. Kelly was doing what R. Kelly was doing in front of us. Yeah. R. Kelly wasn't doing this in the cover of night. R. Kelly wasn't being secretive about this. We knew and could see it. And the discussion has always been, or was always more either making fun of it or making mm-hmm. light of it or condimenting how stupid he was to have videoed it in the first place. And then you move into Bill Cosby. Mm. And you know, Bill Cosby has multiple victims and Bill Cosby is different from R. Kelly in that he uh, has some Caucasian victims and some African-American victims. But the victim that we all know the best is Andrea Costand. And Andrea Costand is an African-American female. And so was Bill Cosby allowed to get away with what he was doing in front of everyone 
based both upon his stature in the community and the fact that his victim was an African-American female. Mm -hmm. It's a conversation that we really should consider because the most disenfranchised person in the United States of America is the Black female. If we can assume that there are privileges to being male in the community and there are privileges to being Caucasian in the community, then it is almost that double whammy to be an African-American female in the community at large, not an African-American community, but just our society, the most disenfranchised section are African-American women. It's a great transition to what I would like for us to discuss next. I want to talk about some of those overarching biases against African-American women as we continue to see them, what happens with the system and even within victim advocacy. So within victim advocacy, by and large, just we as humans, when we view African-American girls, studies show that African-American girls are viewed by adults as more sexually mature than white girls in the same peer group. And there's really no good reason for that. Well, of course, there's not going to be a good reason for that. But what, I'm, what I mean to say, or maybe a better way of saying that, is there is no one factor that we can point to as to why that's the case. We just see it playing out decade after decade, that those girls are viewed as more sexually mature. They're viewed as older. And when African-American girls are victims, they're less likely to be believed by those who see them as older than they actually are. For instance, the way this plays out in a courtroom, when a girl of any race comes into a courtroom and she is in that 14, 15-year-old age range where it is illegal to have sex with her, even consensual sex, by an adult male. When she comes into the courtroom, the jury is often judging how sexually advanced she might look. There is this assumption on the part of a lot of jurors that if she's kind of a Lolita type, that maybe she's not worth protecting. And of course, we know that's not the case. And of course, we know that those are biases and assumptions that shouldn't be had. But it does happen. And so it is a problem when a girl of that age who is African-American is seen as more sexually mature because those myths and biases that an individual juror might have are going to play out more for her. And so there's a woman by the name of Rebecca Epstein. She was a researcher at Georgetown University. And in 2017, she had some mock juries a mock jury, just for anyone who doesn't know, is when you put forth a fake case with different fact scenarios to jurors and just, um, or people acting as a jury, and just see what's their response to this type of case, what would your verdict be? And so she did this, she had these mock juries. And in her study, the juries were more likely to believe that the perpetrator was guilty if the victim was white. And in cases, because they could control the facts of these mock juries, then some of the cases were particularly obvious or more violent in a, an egregious way. Mm-hmm. When, the, when the facts, though, were very, very similar, so it was neutral and it could go either way, they were more likely to convict when the victim was white. That's, it's really hard to hear, even though we've seen it, you know, no, no. One of the things that we've talked about on multiple episodes is how difficult these cases already are just in and of themselves to try that when jurors come into the courtroom and they sit in that box, they do bring all of those biases with them, whether they know that they have them or not, they do. And immediately, as soon as the victim walks into the courtroom, they're judging her. They're taking inventory, they're taking stock, they're trying to figure it out. And what, you know, what the study is telling us is that we're already starting, in my opinion, two steps behind in a sex crimes case in the first place because people just lose their minds when sex is involved, but then we're pushed even farther back if they see an African-American victim. And that is absolutely unacceptable. And again, that study that you just cited was in 2017. It wasn't in 95. It wasn't even in 2005. It was three years ago. This is today. This is what we're still dealing with today. That's right. And so what we have to do as prosecutors and as civil attorneys is we need to be reminded of that and we need to be cognizant of 
how am I going to approach the case? How am I going to be smart about the way that I discuss these issues with jurors so that they are forced to overcome their own bias? Because we can't really shy away from trying those cases or we're a part of the problem. Absolutely. Nor can we shy away from having that conversation, which I can tell you, I will admit that I have shied away from that conversation during jury selection before because it is so uncomfortable. And as a white person, I didn't understand how the best way to do it was. And I think I did a disservice to the victims on that case because of that. I feel the same way. I I can look back into my own cases, my own history and think there was a missed opportunity there and not just a missed opportunity, but yeah, like you said, a disservice. I didn't have the strength or fortitude to address it head on and you have to. And I, I think that, um, there is this misperception that conversations about race are for black people only. And that's not the case. If anything, if the last two weeks have shown us anything, this conversation must include white people. And that's pretty much the goal of this podcast is to talk about this as white people, to encourage white people to talk about it and to encourage white people to not only talk about it, but seek out and continue to grow in how you talk about it. Because just trying to talk about it is not good enough. We have to keep growing in the methods that we use when we talk about it but it's no longer sufficient to put your head in the sand. If we care about victims, and I know that you do, and I know that I do, and I know that most of, I can't even think of one person I've worked with who doesn't care about victims, then we have to examine these cases and examine the language that we use and be not not careful about the way that we do it, but just purposeful about the way that we do it. And you know, one thing too, I'll stop here and say this as an aside. When I said language, really, honestly, if your job is to help victims, you need to research cultural differences in language and how we talk to people. And I'll give you an example of that. When Caucasian people talk to others, talk to strangers, it is common for Caucasian people, whites, to use kind of like very casual language. We say honey or dear or sweetie or, and we're very casual with each other. And that is the way that we show that we trust each other because I trust you enough to let down my walls. In trying to learn how to talk to different types of victims, I have done some research It's not my own research, but I've read research, let's put it that way, on how different cultures talk to one one another and and how do you build up rapport. In the African-American community, respect must come first before trust. So that is why if you are first meeting an African-American victim and you start behaving very casually with that person, that might, you may think that you are conveying trust. You're conveying that this is an open relationship and you can trust me. But that casual language will be received by your African-American victim as infantilizing, mm-hmm. as demeaning, and that you have not given them proper respect and agency as an adult. So there are times where people have good intentions and they haven't done the work to figure out how to get those good intentions across. And so if you really wanna be the best that you can be in this line of work, recognize that it's not about you. (laughs) It's about whoever you're here to service and help. Really be smart about, there are cultural differences even in something as small as communication. That's a super important point. You think that you're being kind when, and actually you're being condescending. And so having that cultural competency is a great starting point. I mean, I think that for anybody who's listening, start there. Make sure that you are competent with no matter whom it is, within whatever the culture is that they come from. You have to be aware of that and you have to be thinking of that when you go into these conversations. And it's not always, it's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be comfortable, but that's the whole point. You got to sit in that discomfort and move through it because that's the only way we're ever going to solve it is if we really lean into it like that. 
I want to circle back to talk a little bit more about when African-American women do report. What do we see after that, at that point in time, they're reporting a sexual assault? So we know that most victims do not report a sexual assault. And when we say report, we don't mean confide in another person. We mean call the police, file a formal report. And so most women across the board do not report their sexual assault. But when African-American women do report, it is less likely that charges will be filed. So prosecutors are less likely to charge those cases, which is why we need to challenge one another as prosecutors to step a bit outside of what, how will a jury view this case? Because I already talked to you about jurors and some of their biases, and we have to accept that those biases exist in our own profession as well. And we also see that in the courtroom, there is some judicial bias because studies show that when assailants of black females are sentenced, that they generally receive shorter sentences than when the victim is white. So in the news and what we hear a lot about is African-American people in terms of interactions with the police and being charged with crimes. But what we're seeing here is it goes much farther beyond that. And it's pervasive within the system as it relates to victims, all the way from jurors to perception by everyone of African-American victims to the point where less cases are filed and they're receiving shorter sentences than, than white women victims. It actually goes even further. It goes all the way into victim advocacy. For the untrained, or I guess outside of the criminal justice system listener, victim advocates have a different role. They often can work for shelters. They can work for uh, just groups that are solely victim advocate groups. They can work for police departments and prosecutors' offices. But they're not quite like a therapist, but their job is to guide the victim through whatever part of the process they're in. Maybe it's just a DV shelter, but they're supposed to guide them through that process. And I know I'm super mouth heavy today, but there was another study, and this was in 1994. And these are domestic violence victims, but I think it's really important still to what we're talking about. There were two gentlemen who interviewed DV victims who were living in a domestic violence shelter And they noticed a difference in the way that they were treated, not only by the advocates, but by the police both as they intersected. So white victims were given information on shelters and protective orders in much higher numbers than the African-American victims. And that's important because in the domestic violence realm, if the victim is not separated from her attacker, then that violence will not end. And shelter is often that first step in getting them to be apart for a lengthy period of time. In that study, and I don't have how many women were interviewed for you, but I can tell you that none of the assailants of the African-American women who were interviewed in that study were arrested. Zero. My God. Good Lord. You say that you're math heavy today, but I don't think that we can properly emphasize how important data is and things like this. The data doesn't lie. If taken in the proper context, it does not lie. It does not exaggerate. And it is not just anecdotal. We've talked about this in other episodes where you hear the anecdotal stories and people are like, shoot, that's a problem. And then they walk away from it. But when you have the numbers in front of you, you can't, there's, there's nothing that you can say. It's the God's honest truth staring you right in the face because they've studied it at length. Backing up a little bit, we've talked a little bit about once in the system. I want to talk about any issues with reporting. Do we see anything there? Is there anything that is worth noting in terms of the rates of African-American women reporting their sexual assaults? Only one in 15 African-American women report sexual assault to police officers. Uh, So that number is very low because in this work, we typically use a one in five. So when we talk about sexual assault victims as a whole, the number of who reports is one in five. Well, one in five women are sexually assaulted. And then it's around maybe one in five or so who are going to report that in some manner, whether they're telling someone or they're going to hospital or they're actually reporting it. So one in 15 is a very, very low number. Wow. Why? So, you know, African-American women are not only women, right? Sexual assault, we know it touches men. We know that boys are molested. We know that there are men who are raped, but sexual assault is by and large a gender issue. Um, And we know that. 
But African-American women are not only women. They have definitions to their character that are contributions of being Americans, that are contributions of being women, but that are also contributions of living and working in an African-American society. So these issues that so many of us are now forced to reckon with over the past couple of weeks are not new issues for them. And so you mentioned police brutality or mass incarceration. Those are not issues that are only gonna touch the black male. African-American women are married to black men. They are mothers of black men and it is going to affect them as well. We also need to recognize that issues that are going to touch the black male as far as relating to police officers or the criminal justice system are going to touch black females as well. So it's not only I am the mother of a black male, it is I am a black person in the United States. But as it relates to black women in the African-American community, they are often placed in the position of reinforcing solidarity within that racial group. And you can sort of see that play out even in pop culture. If you watch movies with an African-American cast, there is usually this strong matriarch to the family, you know, Sunday dinners at the grandmother's house. That's a common trope in a a movie with an African-American cast. And it's common for a reason, because it is typically grandma who is keeping the family together and having Sunday dinners. So The African-American female is uniquely responsible in that community for her family and her community members. And so you have to think to yourself as an African-American female, if her responsibility is to her family and her community and her perpetrator is male, what does that do to her sense of responsibility if calling the police for myself means putting another black man in the system? And if that is viewed as something that is potentially dangerous for that person, if she views it as dangerous, then she is going to be less likely to report that incident to the police because she may not view whatever violence she believes coming is appropriate for her crime. So those are the things that she's thinking about. Any woman, when she's thinking about reporting it, if she knows her assailant, she's thinking about, do I want to make a big deal out of this? We, we also know, particularly women who know their assailants, they're really trying to square their past knowledge of their attacker with this new knowledge. And it's very off-putting. It's very hard for them to reconcile the two. Imagine throwing this other element into that mix and it can be kind of soul-crushing, right? Absolutely. You're looking at a crime that is already the most underreported in the United States as it stands, period. It's extremely difficult to report, especially when a victim knows her assailant, which the vast majority of sexual assaults in the United States of America are perpetrated by someone the victim knows. It's already very, very hard. And then you add on this intense pressure based on I don't even know how to say it, not letting down your community or or making sure that you don't add to problems for people within your community. Or just this genuine fear. I mean, I may want to find out why this happened. I may want to, you know, come to terms with why this happened to me, but I don't think you should die. And if I'm afraid that I will call the police and they will kill you, then I'm not going to call the police. Whether that fear is reasonable or not is a conversation that is happening across the country. So that's not really our conversation for today. We just have to acknowledge that the fear exists. And we really, really, really don't need to be in the space of telling a victim whether or not her fears are reasonable or unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Period. Period. Ever. Just like you said, it is important and our responsibility overarching theme here throughout the day to understand these things and to act accordingly, to be an ally within the system based on knowing all of this now. That's right. We need to be smart about how are we going to address that so that we can improve. We can improve the way we do business. We can seek justice for Black women 
and white women and every type of woman. We, the, the justice system should not be to protect one segment of society. The justice system should be applicable for all. Absolutely. Let's transition to that a little bit right now. Can you talk a little bit about issues for the criminal justice system as it relates to white allies? Yeah. So as a white person who works in the criminal justice system and needs to kind of address this issue and push forward into this issue head on, when we discuss sexual assault and this need to believe victims, that's very important, right? Because we have come from a history and in many ways are still in a history where women are not believed immediately when they report. And even if you look back into the Me Too movement, I would question listeners, when you saw those women who tweeted or put on their Facebook, or I don't think Instagram was quite as hot at the time, so probably more just Twitter and Facebook. When you saw a female and she put on her status or tweeted, hashtag Me Too, what did you think about that? Did you immediately believe her or were you like, hmm, Karen, you're just trying to get some attention. You always think it's all about you because I'm here to tell you some people did look at that and think, "Uh, I don't know about that one. She always thinks everybody's flirting with her. So it's been very important, right, in our movement to get to believe women until we have a reason not to, or unless we are confronted with some evidence. It's become very, very important to our conversation. And I'm happy we're in that place. But we also have to say and respond to the fact that when we as a society say believe all women, we have to confront this idea that there is, it is a historic fact that in the past, there were white women who lied about being raped by black men. That is a fact. It is a fact that women lied because they were caught having um, an affair or a relationship with a black male that would have ruined their standing in society in Jim Crow times. So it is a fact that women lied about that. It is a fact I mentioned earlier with Emmett Till. It's a, it is a fact that that victim, she was a store clerk, like a 7-Eleven type store. And um, I'm using the word victim in quotes because of course we know the real Emmett Till or the real victim was Emmett Till. But what happened is he had come down to visit from I think around Chicago is where he was from. I could have that wrong, but he was definitely coming down to visit and was not from the area. And he went in to make a purchase. And when she reached out her hand to give him change and he grabbed the change, he grabbed onto her hand and held her hand for the briefest of moments. That is what happened between that woman and Emmett Till. And we know that to be true because she's admitted that that is what happened. But she, he then whistled at her. So she took an affront to the fact that he had touched her, he had held on to her, and then he whistled at her. And she told her family members that he had raped her. So that is just a fact. And it is deeply painful part of our history that informs how African Americans view the system because Emmett Till was lynched. And lynching is, you know, for this imaginary crime of raping a woman, he was lynched because he whistled at a white woman. And that is real. And so when we think about lynching and we think about Emmett Till and we think about the Central Park Five, and I've made it a point when I speak about the Central Park Five to call them by their names because Central Park Five is what we called them when they were rapists and they are not. So Raymond, Kevin, Antron, Youssef, and Corey are the exonerated five. And in that circumstance, that woman was attacked and she was raped and she had no memory of what had happened to her because she was beaten so mercilessly. So she did not accuse them. But we did have a criminal justice system that made it their business to extract justice out of four boys and one young man who did nothing. And that is in the not so distant past. No. We have to acknowledge that. And if you don't acknowledge it, you know, 
people don't feel respected until they feel heard. So if we don't acknowledge that and incorporate that into believe all women, then there's going to be a huge group of people who cannot believe all women because that's caught us up in the past. That's been what got us into a bad space before. So we have to acknowledge that in some way, but find our way out so that we don't go back to that point in our history. And how do we do that? What can our listeners do? People who are part of the system, even those who aren't part of the system, people who are just allies to survivors, generally people who want who want to do better by not just victims, but all victims, including African-American victims and other people of color. So the first thing you can do is listen, right? You listen and you don't just listen passively. You need to hear pain and you need to not dismiss oh, well, that was really far in the past or things like that. When you have a qualifier for someone's pain, it means you are not accepting their pain. You are justifying why that pain should not exist anymore. And when you don't have your own frame of reference, then it's really none of your business how it's affecting this other person. It's really not your place to tell anyone else what their experience is. As an aside, I always hate... (laughs) I I act, I travel a lot to um, different places and I encounter a lot of prosecutors and it bugs me to no end when people talk about, oh, I became a prosecutor because I love to give voice to victims. Knock it off. Victims have their own voice. They don't need you to give them anything. They only need you to respect them and give them the space to communicate. You are not their voice. You are assisting them in achieving their own voice. So it's little stuff like that where you belittle someone with like, oh, this is how you must feel, or I'm going to give you a voice, or I'm going to give you this opportunity. You're not handing anyone anything. You are acknowledging and having empathy for a situation. So if we know that it's difficult for an African-American female to report, then when she does, we should be doing more listening than talking. We need to do more active listening. You know, we really need to move away from why didn't you do this or, or language like that and say, just acknowledge and say, this must have been very difficult for you to report. Tell me what led you to that decision. Open-ended questions. When someone acknowledges a situation, or excuse me, mentions a situation to you, then accept it as truth and be willing to carry that truth to other people who need to hear that message. That's not being a voice for a victim. That is learning something from people and taking that on to your next role. Super important. This is not about you. Right. This is not about us. It's not about any of us. This is about this person. We also need to think about where we're having these conversations because there are places where it is not hard to reach out to an African-American audience. The religious experience in the United States has become very segregated and not really become, it has always been very segregated. Um, So the African-American religious leaders though have a great importance in a predominantly African-American community. They have the ability to reach out to groups of people, large groups of people of differing ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's an opportunity for community justice partners to speak to the churches. Those churches do not only want to help their Black men. They want to help their Black women too. And there are Bible studies and prayer circles that are, um, and Sunday school classes that are only women. So we can ask to come and speak to those women. But when we do, we do not belittle them for being, you know, reporters to numbers of one in 15. The conversation is going to take time. And the goal basically just really ought to be, you will know me and you will trust that if you come into my office, I will treat you with respect and meet you where you are. And if you never come to my office, that's okay because this was your experience. But if community justice partners are in the churches meeting young children, then that trust is built up. So if something happens years from now, you may be able to get that disclosure. So I I think we really have to think about your community. Where are you going? 
are you having these conversations on a big enough spectrum that people of different races and different ages are going to be able to hear you? And frankly, it doesn't matter if six people come to a talk. If you have on your Facebook page as a law firm or a police department or a prosecutor's office that you are giving a talk about African-American I guess, victimization, the victimization of the African-American woman or something that's easier to hear, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of a wordy uh, title. But if you are putting out there that you're open to these conversations and you keep doing it, you don't just write it off when only six people come, more people will come because that person wants to listen to me. And I think the other thing is we need to not say that's only a problem for big cities that's only a problem for inner cities. It doesn't matter if you have a very small African-American population. That is a citizen that you serve. And we have to stop being afraid as white people to have the conversation. If change is going to be made, then everyone has to be a part of the conversation. It can't be just one segment. You can't exclude yourself from it. And I, you mentioned you've been afraid to talk about race. I was afraid to start teaching about this. But... Sadly, it remains true that when some African Americans speak about race, there are some white people who tune that out. There's a reason why the, um, it's a horribly disparaging term, but angry black female. There is a reason why some people will use that sort of as a, as a dagger as if this woman doesn't have a right to be enraged that she's been taken advantage of and then also has to hold up her community because of the blind eye that we as a society have turned to her plight. So it is just true that there are people out there who will listen to a person in the criminal justice system or the legal system more so than they will listen to someone for whom that is an issue. And so knowing that, whether or not I think that's disgusting, side note, I do, <laughs> but whether or not I think that's disgusting, I decided to use my platform, to use my pulpit to bring this message to other prosecutors, to make sure that we are not afraid to discuss it, we are forced to look at it, and it doesn't always go easily. The topic is okay for me to talk about. I'm not nervous about it anymore. Um, I make it very clear when I teach about it that I'm very open to your comments. Um, I have had some negative comments. The negative comments have never been from my African-American professionals um, and my cohorts. The negative comments have been from people, for instance, in the Manhattan DA office who felt that I uh, wrongly <laughs> maligned the prosecutor in the Central Park Five case. I said that I welcomed any response that the Manhattan DA might want to give. Uh, that has been uh, since August of last year is when I got that comment. I'm still waiting. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> Very poignant, I think, to emphasize the importance of not just the one-on-one -on -one with a victim and understanding these things, but also the community at large. That is our responsibility, period. If you are doing this job, that's your responsibility. And you have to have the courage to stand up and do right by everyone, not just some of your victims, but all the victims. Courtney, do you, anything else you think that would be important to touch on before we close out? Yeah, actually, I was thinking if we know, you know, we're doing this conversation and you're talking to me and I'm a criminal justice partner, but you're coming from a civil firm. And so I was thinking that this conversation is one that I think is a great one for your law firm to pick up, because if we know that there is this distrust that we as law enforcement are going to work on. We're going, I pledge that we are going to work on this. But if we know there's that distrust, then there is a vacuum there for other community partners, for groups, victim advocacy groups, civil law firms to sort of fill that vacuum and continue this conversation as well. It is not, when we talk about systemic racism, it is not solely a law enforcement issue. Mm -hmm. It is a societal issue. 
So what's important, I guess, for me to get across is I don't want anybody listening to the podcast to think that's just a cop thing. That's just a prosecutor thing. Everything I talked about was how does society view the African-American victim? And so if you are listening to this, you are a member of society. So I would challenge our civil partners to do the same work. If you are doing this work for sexual assault victims, ask yourself, how am I incorporating the African-American community? How am I making it clear that my doors are not open only to white people? That's a great point and something that I know my firm in particular definitely takes seriously and we are comfortable leading the charge on it because here we are today. We understand that it's important and that it's just as you said, everyone's responsibility in society because we're just seeing the tip of it. We're not seeing how pervasive it is within all institutions of American society because it is. I just want to conclude by saying no one is born racist or anti-racist. These result from the choices we make. Being anti-racist comes only from consistent decisions to make equitable choices. This means we have to have ongoing self-awareness and self-reflection as we journey through life. It's not something we can decide on an individual basis to do one day and suddenly the problem's gone. It's today, tomorrow, the next day, and the one after that. This is a lifelong endeavor. It requires us to be proactive. We cannot be passive. Being passively non-racist means being complicit. It means we unconsciously uphold aspects of white supremacy, white dominant culture, and unequal institutions in society. Being racist or anti-racist is not about who you are. It is about what you do. We can do better. We must do better. Included in the notes on today's show will be a link to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Cultures Talking About Race Tool. It's a fantastic resource that you can use for guidance. They cover all kinds of different topics within the broader subject of talking about race. They also have a great list of books to help you on your journey. If you don't know where to start, I encourage you to start there. It is incredibly well done. Courtney, thank you for the work you do. You are an inspiration to prosecutors nationwide. You have been and continue to be a mentor to me, not only as a prosecutor, but also as a speaker. I couldn't ever express how much that means to me. and I know it does to countless others. And your friendship is one of the most cherished gifts in my life. I truly appreciate you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time.